California suffers from multiple recent mass shootings. We're taking a deeper look at their effects, how communities are responding, and how leaders are working to prevent future tragedies. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. Gun violence in California is again in the headlines after a series of mass shootings in our state. There's been three of them just recently. One was in Half Moon Bay, where seven people were killed. Another took place in Oakland on Monday night. And the deadliest of these events took place in Southern California's Monterey Park Saturday evening. It's an area of eastern Los Angeles County with a vibrant Asian American community. 11 people were killed at a dance studio there and several others were injured. I'm joined by Mariana Dale. She's a reporter with LAist and the public radio station KPCC. Mariana, thanks so much for joining us here. Thank you for having me. So you're part of a team of reporters at KPCC and LAist that are on this developing story. How do you and your colleagues, you know, go about covering or even just telling a story like this? Well, unfortunately, this is not the first time we've covered an event like this, and it's likely not going to be the last. One of the first stories I worked on at KPCC was the November 2019 shooting at Saugus High School in Santa Clarita, where three people died. First and foremost, we want to make sure that we have the facts right. That means vetting information to the best of our ability before publishing it or broadcasting it. And we work really hard to center the people who are affected, whether that's the victims and their loved ones or the surrounding community. And it sounds like it's an all hands on deck thing here as your daily beat is as a childhood reporter. How do you see your experience, you know, doing that sort of help you tell this story of the shooting and even the community that it's impacting? So the first story that I worked on when I logged on on Sunday was writing a story using a prior interview that we had done with a clinical psychologist that was aiming to help parents talk with their kids about what's happened. It's impossible to completely isolate most kids from news of these events, but we wanted to give parents tools to have, you know, healthy conversations and help their kids process. And I think in a lot of ways, I also worked on the story as a community member. I live in the San Gabriel Valley. I take dance classes at a ballroom and Latin dance studio that's not that far from where the shooting happened. And so I really want to tell people understand this community and the culture of dance. You sort of touched on this a little bit, but with how fast the news media landscape is, you know, Twitter, Instagram and our web stories, do you think that there's sort of like an added responsibility in terms of what journalists or what news organizations are putting out there as these events sometimes are unfolding in real time? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we don't quite have the same like Hippocratic oath as doctors where it's do no harm. But I think in a lot of ways, the the spread of inaccurate information can do harm. It can cause people panic and anxiety. It can fuel like incorrect narratives about what has happened. And so I think it's our duty not to just amplify this chaos that we're hearing about in the world, but really try to make sure that what we're bringing people is accurate and is going to help them navigate the situation the best they can and stay safe. And you also mentioned that you lived near the site of this tragedy. Can you tell us a little bit more about the area, Monterey Park? You know, if you can sort of describe this community that's located in the West San Gabriel Valley. 
Yeah. So Monterey Park is a city of about 60,000 people. It's two thirds Asian. It is known as kind of the first suburban Chinatown. And that was shaped by a couple of events. One after World War II, Japanese immigrants that were returning from concentration camps on the West Coast settled there. And then they also saw a large group of Taiwanese immigrants come in in the 1960s and 70s. And the community has really grown from there. And we know that this shooting happened in Monterey Park's downtown area. It was at a ballroom dance hall called Star Dance. There was one person in a story you talked with who says that the Star Dance studio is the center of happiness for that community. What can you tell us about this venue and its importance there? So Stardance has been open since 1990, and it's very much a multi-purpose space. You have these championship dancers who come in and just kind of go in and out and teach private lessons. But then you also have some really incredible dancers from around the world who are teaching classes to community members and oftentimes a lot of seniors as well. They're taking waltz classes, Roomba, cha-cha-cha, other ballroom dances. And there's karaoke on Wednesdays at Star Dance. You can go and like for 10 bucks on a Saturday, you can go and social dance all night long. And you can also rent the space and it becomes a center for community events in that way. I talked to groups of a mostly Thai social group that that often did that. Los Angeles County's mental health director said that tragic events like this mass shooting, they can cause the community to sort of shut down. What, what do you think she meant by that? And sort of what's her message here? I think she's speaking to this impulse that some people might have to really isolate themselves when they feel badly. There might be a feeling that, you know, it's a holiday, so there's this pressure to be happy because it's Lunar New Year or maybe like, oh, I should be grateful that that I'm still here and this didn't directly impact me. But when you bottle up those feelings, I think what she is saying is that you don't really process what happened and that can have consequences down the line. A theme in your recent story was dancing keeps us together. What do the people you talk to mean by that? So I don't know if you've ever ballroom danced or social danced, but it is like an inherently really social activity. Classes like the ones held at Star Dance and other studios, you don't have to come with your own partner to class. You like rotate and you are partners with everyone. And I think through those interactions, you really start to build connections with people. You might see someone from a class that you took on the weekend and you say hi and you dance with them, or maybe you even dance with a stranger and it's not weird at all. It's just like this respectful environment where people can, you know, get some exercise, de-stress from the week, and just just have fun in a way that feels really wholesome in a space that is really unique, I think, in the time that we live in right now. And finally, what sense do you get about where the community goes from here? Like, has ballroom dancing there stopped? Are they finding ways around that? Well, I think everyone is going to process what happened in a different way. People I talk to were not going to be turned away from dancing. This is something they consider part of their life, part of their community, how they make connections. And so they're not going to stop. On a very micro level, we know that Star Dance has posted on its website that it is closed and it is going to be closed until further notice. But I talked to people who said that if and when it reopened, 
they would want to go back. And then I think on a like a, a larger level, we're also perhaps going to see some more conversations about what political action can be taken right now. California already has strict gun laws and a relatively low rate of gun violence. But as journalists, I think people will be watching out for any policies proposed at the state or federal level that could stop something like this from happening again. I've been speaking with Mariana Dale. She's a childhood reporter from LAist and KPCC. And Mariana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Mass shooting tragedies like the one in Monterey Park this week are not a new phenomenon for Californians. Back in 1984, Los Angeles Times columnist Mark Baraback covered what was then the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history, and it happened here in San Diego. More than 20 people were killed and many others injured at a McDonald's in San Isidro. Baraback reflects on that mass shooting nearly 40 years ago in a new column this week, and Mark is here with us now. Mark, welcome to Roundtable. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So we know that you covered the San Isidro McDonald shooting nearly four decades ago. Then it was the largest mass shooting ever at the time. You write that since then, there's been more than 130 of them. And you say that we as a public have since learned that these types of tragic events can happen anywhere at any time. Can you sort of tell me more about that? What exactly do you mean there? Well, we we can go through a catalog of of places. They've happened in churches. They've happened in temples. They've happened at uh, schools. They've happened at high schools, elementary schools. I mean, really, uh, as I said in in the column, it's almost easier to name the places where we haven't had a mass shooting. And and, and really, if you name it, just about any sort of place where people gather, a concert, a supermarket, we have had mass shootings. You know, going back about 40 years ago, Mark, do you see any parallels in some of the recent mass shootings to this one that happened in San Isidro? Well, uh, the fact that it was shocking, the fact that, that it was a horrific episode. You know, the thing that stayed with me, and, you know, as you mentioned, this has been 40 plus years, so I don't remember a lot of the details. But one thing that I distinctly remember all these years later, I, I, I covered it in, and then after the, uh, the initial reporting, uh, I was assigned the responsibility of, of trying to reconstruct how the 21 victims had all gotten to that McDonald's to be in there at that place at that horrible moment. And I just remember after all these years later, finding this one family who was connected, they, they this horrible series of connections through cousins, siblings, aunts, uncles, a, a substantial number of the victims were all tied to this family. And I remember sitting in their living room for hours, going over with them, looking at pictures and hearing the stories of, of these individuals who, who had died so horribly. And, and the thing that has stayed with me all these years later was just the grace, the kindness, the, the equanimity these folks showed, the desire that their loved ones would not be forgotten. But above all, 40 years later, what really sticks with me was 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 the poise and, and the grace that these folks showed uh, under such horrible circumstances. And how do you see media outlets responding to these types of shootings, you know, 40 years ago, like this one in San Isidro versus ones that are happening now? Well, they're happening now, sadly, with much, much greater frequency. I mean, I, I think they all, each and every one of them, obviously, is a tragedy and, and, and a terrible thing. And they still have the capacity to shock, but I, I would suggest that they have become so much a part, a ritual of our landscape, of our, of our day-to-day lives, such a frequent occurrence that 
you know, while they're shocking, I think I think perhaps they're not as shocking as say the one in San Ysidro at that time. I mean, the mass shootings occurred and had occurred, but with much less frequency, uh, much fewer and much farther between back in those days. So I think the capacity to shock might have been somewhat greater simply because they weren't as common as they are today. Going back to your recent column, you write that, you know, despite these latest mass shootings here, the fact is that the state's strong gun laws are making a difference. Can you tell me more about why you make that case? Yeah, if you look at statistics compiled by different uh, organizations, some some federal agencies that that, that uh, compile this sort of data and keep these sort of statistics show that California has, since we've started passing some of these tougher gun laws, has a lower rate of deaths resulting from firearms than, than other states that have gone the other way. I think of the column I mentioned specifically, Florida and Texas. I refer to them as in a sort of competition to see which which state can be more promiscuous in the way they, they sort of fetishize firearms. California has moved the other direction, and statistically it has shown that California has fewer gun deaths, has less gun violence than other states. Now, we've heard a lot of conversation in the last week, since these two uh, mass shootings occurred, people saying, well, California has really strict gun laws and we still had them. Well, yes, but California is not an island. I know there are some people uh, who live here and some people who live out of California who would love for us to be an island off by ourselves, but we're not. And, you know, when you talk about whether California gun laws are working or not working, you have to factor in that it's very easy to go just across the border, to go to Arizona, to go to Nevada, which have much less restrictive gun laws and, and get firearms there. So I think it's I think it's specious to suggest that somehow California's laws aren't working because these things occur. What we need if we're going to rein these sorts of episodes in and stop them, you'll never prevent them from happening. I think that's impossible. But if we're going to lessen the incidence of them, then what you need is uniform national legislation. So if California is not an island as this, as the analogy you make, what do you think can be done or what are you hearing could be done at the federal level that might be able to prevent some of these tragedies from even happening again? Well, I, I don't think I, I think we can look at some of the things that have a majority of support of, uh, among the American people. A majority of Americans support a ban on assault type weapons. The majority of Americans uh, support what I consider common sense measures like not letting someone with a mental illness buy a gun. Um, like having universal background checks and closing what's called the gun show loophole, where you can walk into a gun show and purchase a weapon without a background check. There are limits on the capacity, you know, uh, high capacity magazines. So there are measures well short. We're not talking about confiscation. We're not talking about taking away people's guns. There are gun safety measures that have a support of the majority of the American people, some a super majority of the American people. But we're not getting these laws passed in Congress. And, and honestly, I have very little faith that anything is going to change or any laws will get passed at least in the next two years of this Congress, simply because the gun lobby in Washington regularly and routinely outmuscles gun advocates. There are lawmakers whose greatest concern on the Republican side is facing a primary and running, you know, having someone who's even more pro-gun primary them and beat them. So there's very little, sadly, I think, incentive structure in a political system for folks to support gun safety the way our politics now operate. 
And in this latest column that you wrote, you quoted a political science professor, and they make the point that the public's attention on events like this are sort of short-lived. And we touched on this just a little bit earlier, but how do you think the media is doing when it comes to covering mass shooting events? Like, is there anything that we as reporters could be doing better in your view? Well, I I don't think I would describe this you know, there's a lot of things that that the media does not well, Uh, some things that the media does poorly in my estimation, but I don't think this is a case of the media covering or not covering them. I mean, this is just, this is human nature. This is a tendency for a lot of folks to be outraged in the moment and then to move on. And I'm not unsympathetic. People have bills to pay, people have lives to live, people have their kids' soccer or basketball or whatever activity you know, to go to on the weekend. People live their lives. But the fact is, politically, the forces that are most successful are those who are most adamant in pushing their position, who are insistent, who have the intensity. And what we have seen time and again is that folks who care about gun rights, as they describe them, who care about the Second Amendment, who oppose gun safety or gun regulations are very adamant. They're very engaged and they are there 24-7, whereas for a lot of folks who may be just as passionate in their uh, abhorrence of the violence that takes place and their shock and their horror, they're concerned, they're shocked, they're horrified, but then perhaps they move on until the next episode. So it really has to do with intensity. Uh, I'll quote myself, I said, there there is no organism on earth that is more responsive to heat and light than a politician. And if they feel the heat, and they're only getting it from one side, then they're going to be responsive. And time and again, we have seen the anti-gun safety, anti-gun regulation forces much more engaged, much more intensely involved than the other side. And until unless that changes, we're not likely to see anything happen in Congress. Mark Baraback is a columnist with the Los Angeles Times. A lot of great insight here, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Though questions remain about whether these most recent mass shootings will lead to any new federal gun legislation, one San Diego effort is receiving some praise for being a successful tool in combating potential gun violence. Alexi Kosif is a reporter from Cal Matters. He wrote about San Diego's Gun Violence Restraining Order Unit last fall, and he joins me now to tell us more about how it's aiming to prevent future tragedies. Alexi, thanks for joining us here on Roundtable. Thank you for having me on. Great to have you here again. So we're talking about red flag laws here, Alexi. That may be an unfamiliar term for some. Generally, how do they work and what are they intended to do? So these laws, which are also known in California as gun violence restraining orders, attempt to keep guns or take guns away from people who are considered dangerous to themselves or others. This law has been around now For about seven years in California, it was passed in the wake of a mass shooting and killing at the UC Santa Barbara campus in 2014. And it gives law enforcement and close family members uh, an opportunity to report somebody that they believe may be dangerous and have their guns, ammunition, and other things temporarily taken away while a court assesses whether they should have a longer-term restriction placed on them. And can you sort of walk us through this a little bit more? Like, how does this process to take away or bar someone from getting a gun even get started? What are some of the steps here? 
So it really needs to start with somebody recognizing a threat or a potential threat. And this can be all kinds of things. It's not necessarily just a mass shooting. Sometimes it's when a family member calls the police because they're worried that you know, somebody in their household might be threatening suicide. It might be because somebody is on drugs or drunk and waving around a gun and threatening somebody. But often the initiating event is somebody calling the police and the police come and assess the situation and they may see that the person is posing a danger with their weapon and file this sort of emergency order to the court, which allows them to confiscate that gun and any other guns, ammunition, you know, all of that kind of stuff for up to three weeks. And during that time, they then may hand over the case to the city attorney's office, which will look into the circumstances and decide whether to pursue a longer term order. And in California, these orders can be up to five years. The most common is that they may get extended sort of a year at a time. And at the end of each year, the person whose guns have been taken away can petition the court to end the order and allow them to get their guns back. Talking about your reporting on the program here in San Diego, how did city attorney Mara Elliott come to feel that, you know, this was something that needed to be done? You mentioned that the law has been on the books for a, a while here. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because Mara Elliott has been rather pioneering in using this law you know, even though it has existed for about seven years, as I said, in many jurisdictions around the state, it's still not being used at, at all or hardly at all. But she was very ahead of the curve in setting up this close relationship with the local law enforcement. So she has this team within the office that has eight staff members, including lawyers, investigators, paralegals. And they are in constant contact with members of the local police, having, you know, cases sent over to them. They're doing trainings for law enforcement agencies in the area to help them understand how to more easily and efficiently, you know, fill out the paperwork, recognize when a law like this might be, you know, useful. And I think she, you know, she said that she was sort of looking for ways to reduce gun violence. And this seemed like it was an opportunity to try and tackle that problem. And just in the city of San Diego alone, the state says that more than 30 percent of these warrants were done here. And that was in 2021. Can you sort of break that down for us? Like, what does that translate to? Or or do we know, uh, is there any data about how many potential incidents of gun violence that this program may have prevented? I don't know if that's easy to track. Right. It's, It's sort of hard to say that, you know, every case stopped some potential incident. You know, it may have stopped a potential incident of violence, but we don't know that that violence would have happened without them intervening. That said, the proponents of this law are are pretty, you know, clear that they feel that they have certainly stopped some things that would have led to tragedy. And, you know, there's fewer stories about, you know, tragic gun violence that are in the news because of their work. But In San Diego, from the end of 2017, when this unit was created through the spring of 2021, as I was starting my reporting, um, more than 1,250 orders had been obtained in, in just San Diego. So 
you know, I think that gives you a sense. I mean, this is a program that is still relatively small, but growing and other counties and cities across the state are still slowly catching up. I think places that have been touched by gun violence in in notable ways are often, you know, more forceful in using it too. For example, Santa Barbara County is one of the places where there is a higher use of this law because, you know, it was the tragedy there that led to its creation. But you know, it's worth noting that some of the biggest jurisdictions, particularly Los Angeles, this law hardly gets used. I mean, in a county of 10 million people in 2021, there were only 54 orders, 54 gun violence restraining orders that were issued in Los Angeles County. And as we wrap up here, we know that you're always close to what's happening in Sacramento politics-wise. In the wake of these recent mass shootings, what are you hearing about maybe any potential legislative efforts when it comes to gun violence? So Sacramento, certainly the last, you know, however many years, there's always new uh, gun safety-related legislation that's being proposed and passed in Sacramento. I think that's probably a result of the fact that we've just had an endless stream of mass shootings and other tragedies the last few years. I mean, there's there's never been a pause, unfortunately. Uh, one of the things that is certainly going to be a big, um, you know, a big priority this year is dealing with the fallout from the Supreme Court decision last year that overturned Um, you know, concealed carry laws. And California narrowly failed last year to pass a follow-up law putting restrictions on where where people can carry weapons. So um, that will be a big focus this year for, for lawmakers is trying to craft a law that fits within that Supreme Court decision, but still puts certain kinds of restrictions on where people can carry weapons in the state. Alexi Kosif is a reporter with Cal Matters and focuses on California politics. Alexi, always great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable. Be sure to stream our show anytime as a podcast. Roundtable is produced by Andrew Bracken, Rebecca Chacon, and Adrian Villalobos are our technical directors. I'm your host, Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us. <laughs>